I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hi, friends. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Effie Parks, and this is it. It's the last episode of Once Upon a Gene for the year 2022, with no end in sight. And that's a good thing. Man, I have had an extraordinary year, and I've had the opportunity to meet hundreds of you in person, which I can't believe, and I wish for next year to be equally as fruitful. I'm thinking about maybe putting a travel tracker on my website for next year, sort of like, where in the world is once upon a gene? You know, I'm going to be going to places like Charleston, Boston, New Jersey, Madrid. So um, it's going to be exciting. And I hope that I can see as many of you as possible on all of those trips. So thank you for your friendship. And thank you for your friendship to each other in the rare community. I wish you all the happiest of New Year's and I hope you're taking care. And like I said, it's the last episode, so let's get into it. I'm a little obsessed with pharmacists joining our rare disease folds, and I have another one to introduce you to today. He's on the board of the Alstrom Syndrome Foundation, and we've self-dubbed him the rare disease pharmacist, and I think it's going to stick. He's motivated, and he jumped right in, and he has an important voice already, and I look forward to following his journey, because in rare disease, we need all the help we can get. Please enjoy my conversation with Chase Palmer. Hello, Chase. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to chat with you today. Hi, how are you today, Effie? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. You're my first pharmacist on the show, so I have lots of questions and I don't know a lot about it, so I'm really intrigued and can't wait to learn more. Can you please give us an introduction and tell us how you as a pharmacist came into the rare disease fold? Sure. So um, during the pandemic, late 2020, um, I started working um, with a nonprofit called Alstrom Syndrome International. We work with persons living with Alstrom Syndrome. It's a rare genetic disorder that affects just about every cell and every organ of the body. It starts with usually blindness and deafness, goes through to heart failure, diabetes, liver failure, kidney failure, some more onslaught of phenotypes that make uh, everyday life a really tough time for them. I was approached by the executive director of ASI to be a member of the board in early 2021, I guess. So I started having contact in 20 and then came in in 21. And I stepped on and started meeting patients living with rare disorders. I recently started, um, well, I say recently, I guess at the beginning of this year, when we started being able to have multidisciplinary clinics again, I started playing the role of clinical pharmacist at those. 
and I've been trying to learn more and more as time goes on in order to hopefully treat and eventually cure Alstrom syndrome as well as uh, the other rare disorders that are out there. Yeah. Was there a personal connection with someone with the Alstrom community? Were you their pharmacist? How did they pick you? So I was the pharmacist for the, at one time, one of the world's leading researchers in Alstrom syndrome. She passed in 2016, uh, Jan Marshall, but her husband actually has been working with children with Alstrom syndrome sort of on the advocacy side for between 20 and 25, probably almost 30 years now. He approached me and asked me um, if I would speak to uh, some patients after I did a med rec with him once. And from there, I just started meeting you know, patients, parents, families, and becoming um, at first virtual because of sort of the COVID nightmare we all lived through. And then eventually this year, I've had the privilege of meeting tens to hundreds of persons living with Alstrom syndrome and uh, hearing their stories. So that's really what, what drew me in at first was the, the virtual was great. But what's really drawn me in this last year or two has really just been working with um, people in person at our different multidisciplinary clinics and, you know, getting to go over their meds with them, hearing their stories, and I guess trying to uh, hopefully find better treatments down the road. Yeah. Can you tell me what you mean when you say you started practicing as a clinical pharmacist? Sure. There's a couple different uh, realms of pharmacy, I guess. There is retail, which I've done a little bit of. Clinical pharmacist is sort of like your hospital pharmacist or a pharmacist with some sort of a specialty. I would consider myself sort of just a general clinical pharmacist. Obviously, I have uh, some time working with Alstrom syndrome, and I'm always gaining knowledge there. Some clinical pharmacists work, uh, they specialize in, say, cardio or infectious disease. Thanks to all the infectious disease pharmacists out there during the COVID pandemic, they did some really good work for us out there in our local communities. But it's sort of, I guess, just a clinical pharmacist works with patients in a hospital or in an acute care setting, or even sometimes an ambulatory care setting, sort of monitoring like diabetic medications or heart medications that a person's on, helping them be adherent, helping them understand the possible side effects, drug-drug interactions, and just making sure that they can have the best quality of life as possible. Yeah. You know, it seems like it's a no-brainer that a pharmacist would kind of be on our team, especially in the world of rare diseases. So I love that the Alstrom community sought you out and put you on their board for that. I've been seeing lots of stuff on Twitter in like the last year about pharmacists like having more of a seat at the table, right? in our circle of care. Like it almost seems like you should be on the palliative care team for a lot of these kids. I think that it's probably an under-recognized, valuable team member. And I'd love to know your take on what kind of like a unique approach pharmacists can take in being part of our care teams and managing our kids with their rare diseases. Absolutely. I think a, a seat at the table is a perfect way to say it because in a, any given disease state, right? Like I think the doctor truly is the center of care, whether it be for heart, obviously the cardiologist would be, um, that's their specialty and they know boatloads about that sort of thing. But I do think from a multidisciplinary approach for people that are going to have to be taking, you know, three, five, 10, 15, sometimes even 20 medications, um, which isn't all that uncommon in the rare disorder space. I think having a pharmacist out there to truly work on the drug-drug interactions, make sure that medications aren't being taken that could negatively affect an already affected organ, uh, as well as just making sure that the medications that people are taking uh, truly are safe and they're going to be effective for them and they make things better, not worse. Uh, let's dig into that part a little more about patients taking drugs that could perhaps cause irreparable damage. 
Is that just lack of understanding, lack of researching before one decides what drugs kids should take? Or, I mean, how do you figure that out? I think one of the things that it takes is just sort of know, first of all, knowing the side effects that a possible medication can have, um, and also just taking a multi-system systematic approach, which I think really where pharmacists can come in and shine on that. For example, there's um, a medication that may be for perfectly great in like diabetes, but then it might have a black box warning for something like heart failure. And for example, in Alstrom syndrome, that, that would be a big no-no because you don't want anything that's gonna, that could negatively affect the heart. Another one is just sort of if people are dealing with pain, but one of the phenotypes that a rare disorder might show is like liver failure, then you wouldn't want to give them Tylenol. That's a really easy one that everyone knows, right? But there's there's sort of hundreds of examples like that, that I think is just really important to try to optimize therapy to not only treat symptoms and um, give better quality of life, but also make sure they're not going to damage other organ systems and other parts of the body that need to be taken into consideration. I mean, you're really like that that last line of defense, right? Between everything that you go through and then you finally get the medication and you're about to administer it to your kid. How do you keep all of that information in your head and make sure to not let something fall through the cracks when you're delivering that to someone? I think the first thing is just sort of trying to make sure that you always stay up to date on your knowledge. The other is just using the resources that you have in the in the technology age. Don't get me wrong, pharmacists certainly do know a ton about drugs and they know a lot of the drug-drug interactions and whatnot. But the more important thing really is, is being able to know how to use, say, a drug database or look at a study and be able to um, analyze the data and make educated decisions about the, the care moving forward. I think that's a big move that's happened sort of in the last 10 or 15 years in pharmacy where it went from knowing the common, um, you know, or even say 20 years, but just knowing the common side effects of a drug and being able to regurgitate it, as opposed to still knowing that, but knowing that you can look up things you don't know, but really being able to evaluate drug data and be able to communicate with people the um, sort of, I guess, take in the information and then figure it out and then give people the option to give them all their options and allow them to make good decisions about their care. Can you talk to us about getting our drugs covered can be so extremely difficult in rare disease world, especially with people having different insurances and companies having different formularies. Can you talk all about that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, something there definitely is something to be careful for when um, trying to get a new get on a new medication. You would think it would be just as simple as the, the doctor or the specialist you know, prescribes it, the pharmacist verifies it, and then you dispense it. And then off you go and hopefully getting healthier and happier and having better quality of life. But a lot of times a major barrier can be the insurances, which I, I do get it at some level because they have to pay for everything. So they're trying to have different things to optimize care. It's something just to be aware of to make sure that if there's a tiered system, sometimes they might want you to try something else first. Uh, what I would say there is just be careful that when going into something like that, if there is just making sure that you take a look at all of the medications and making sure that the medication that is, say, a lower tier, like the preferred one, isn't is going to have the same positive result that you're looking for. And also that it's not going to have any interactions or side effects with some of the other medications. And if that is the case, then there's a thing called the prior authorization that can usually be done where the doctor will submit some information to the insurance company. And oftentimes you're able to get medications covered that way. Internationally, as far as some of the other, I guess, socialized countries, they do fu function on a formulary as well. Uh, I don't know a whole lot about how 
that goes as well as far as getting things covered in other countries. Aside from the fact that I do know that, for example, in Spain, I've done some work with um, Alls from Spain in the past. I know that with their insurance system, it's it is it is also a tiered system, um, but they have to go through you have to go through your uh, like the government alley as opposed to through the private sector like it is in the United States. So that is a little bit different there. What are your thoughts on pharmacists being able to actually prescribe certain medications? Personally, I think that the ambulatory care approach is really, I guess, pragmatic and useful where you do have a physician overseeing. It's called a collaborative practice agreement where, say, Dr. X will write a prescription and then give the pharmacist permission to follow that disease state, make recommendations sort of as a pair and also change dosing as they follow the patient, whether it's say it's like for a statin, looking at doses based on the lipids or following A1C or weight and diabetes, different things like that. So I think the collaborative practice really is where pharmacy is going as far as on the clinical end and also will be a really helpful way to, you know, keep keep doctors, keep nurses on the team and certainly keep them working to help with health, but also allowing pharmacists to do what we truly know how to do, which is manage medications. Yeah. I mean, I think reimagining how we can deliver care to patients, but especially rare disease patients, is so important. And hopefully it moves faster than most things. Can you talk about why you would recommend patient advocacy groups to explore the idea of connecting with pharmacists for their boards or as consultants in some way for their patient population? Sure. Uh, I think it's a really good idea to have pharmacists on board in the same way that uh, whether it be through a board position, through a scientific advisory board or a medical advisory board, um, I think having a pharmacist on on board can be really progressive as it really allows for multidisciplinary care with a lot of rare disorders, disease and disease and life in general, but particularly genetic disorders. I think that having a pharmacist on to be able to manage the medications, being able to you know consult, have adv- advocacy groups consult with pharmacists uh, at or bringing them, for example, like we do to a multidisciplinary clinic where you're able to get some, um, a fresh set of eyes to look over a medication list and hopefully someone that has some specialty or some expertise in the disease state in question um, just to make sure that your care is truly optimized. I think that pharmacists really do play an important role in moving rare disease forward and the medical team as a whole, doctors, pharmacists, nurses, even dentists in some cases, and um, all of the other uh, practicing practitioners out there just working together to try to find the best solution and having sort of individualized care that helps meet the needs of the patient as well as, you know, not just their particular health, but their goals, their wants, and allowing them to be able to live a life that is worthwhile to them. Mm, I love that. You know, it's going to just, it's always going to look different for each condition. And it's so important to kind of be mindful of that from all directions for a rare disease patient. How about when your doctor prescribes you a medication and insurance says, actually, you should try this one instead? Who who decides that? Like, do you get to go over that and decide absolutely not? Um, you need this one instead. Is 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 it just like insurance companies trying to give you something cheaper? Could this be dangerous when it's not prescribed by the doctor but decided upon by the insurance companies? Does that have anything to do with your world? And what should we do as advocates to you know make sure that that doesn't happen or to keep our eyes on it if it does to make sure it goes in the right direction? I think as far as the advocacy end goes, um, it's just making people be mindful that that is that is possible that it will happen. And 
giving them the tools to work with their doctor, their pharmacist, their entire healthcare team to be able to work past it. From a logistics standpoint, it sort of goes back to that prior authorization thing we were talking about earlier. Sometimes insurance companies will reject something because they want you to try a cheaper option first, certainly. Sometimes it actually is because they they can see that you're on another medication and they don't want the they don't like the drug interaction so they reject it because of that so i think uh when looking through insurance rejections it's just important to find the reason why um if there is a legitimate medical reason why and it's you know helpful that to not be on that medication then maybe changing the if the new medication say is necessary then changing the agent that was causing some of the problems might be helpful uh the other end of it is if it's a cost thing then um that prior authorization process really is where that happens where the doctor shows that look this medication might be more expensive but it's necessary to help this this person you know be able to be able to live and thrive and sort of just deal with whatever the vicissitudes of their their own day are and hopefully to be able to live a happy and successful life can you tell me why I have to go like two hours out of my way to get one of Ford's medications as compounded? Like, don't all pharmacists compound medications? What's the process for that? Yeah. So for certain pharmacies, there are your normal retail pharmacy, especially nowadays, doesn't do a whole lot of compounding. In school, all pharmacists do learn how to compound. But in the same way where we're talking about, um, you know, certain pharmacists have a specialization in cardio or rare disease or diabetes or ambulatory care or whatever the case may be. Some pharmacists are very good at compounding and they work at compounding pharmacies. So if it's an issue of sort of if the medication needs to be sterile or if it's a hormonal product or um, any number of things, then having it done at a specialty compounding pharmacy really can lead to better care. They have the tools and and everything, you know, whether it be the proper scales, the proper uh, st- sterile hood if you need it to be uh, to be able to compound a medication effectively as opposed to sort of just like your corner of the you know your corner drugstore sort of deal i see i see okay that makes sense the specialty aspect of it but that's not necessarily a specialty pharmacy right specialty pharmacies are something completely different than both scenarios no they, those two things i guess that that is one of those they're definitely not congruent, but um, there is some similar aspects. A lot of times, something that must be compounded is specialty, just because if it's not if it's not a commercially made product, there's usually something a little different about it. But yeah, that's certainly true. There are pharmacies that do specialty things, but may not necessarily do a lot of compounding. And then there's some there's some pharmacies that sort of hang their hat on being great compounding pharmacies, but they don't deal a whole lot with specialty meds. That that is a fair nuanced point to make. You know, I just I really do feel like pharmacists have a valuable place here to like create a little more access also. And I think that families can and do really create personal relationships with their local pharmacists, especially if they live in a more rural area. And I think that that should be opened up a little bit more to be able to be a care partner with these patients and families. My entire entry into the rare disease space was because of a relationship built at your rural small town pharmacy. It just so happened to be that the island I worked on, um, I, uh, it's an island off the coast of Maine, just so happened to be that the island I worked on, that's where Alstrom Syndrome International kind of began. And that's, uh, so that was a, a small time or a, I guess a small world connection, but I agree the, uh, the connection can truly be very profound. And also um, for people in rural areas, the local drugstore can be the only access to healthcare for, you know, 25, 50, 100 miles which in sort of, a, I guess, a very rural area, um, 100 miles can mean a couple hour drive, two, three hour drive to the closest specialist or the closest major hospital. So I think that you're right about the 
the pharmacist pit playing a very key role in rural areas. Yeah. I'd love to know a personal story, if one pops into your head, of your experience so far being on the Alstrom board um, and maybe perhaps what you've contributed and seen a difference with or maybe some of the feedback you've gotten or just how you've grown as a pharmacist. Absolutely. I think the thing that I'm the most proud of that I do is being able to walk through and look at medication lists with patients and also work with work with their providers to try to help optimize drug regimens. And at, while I'm doing that, I'm able to learn about different practice areas, whether it's chatting with a geneticist, a cardiologist, an endocrinologist, and trying to soak up, you know, just whatever, whatever little bit of knowledge that they're willing to give me. It's always a learning process. And I, I truly value that. It's, it's hard to call some them patients when truly now a lot of these people are some of my closest friends that I talk to about life and their wants and goals, my wants and goals, um, and I know their families. So I guess that's probably the most rewarding thing. And another very meaningful thing I got the chance to work on was recently in September. I believe you actually put, put out a post for us about this, about the PFDD. Being able to present at that um, and sort of introduce Alstrom syndrome before the uh, before the panel of patients came and talked about their experience was truly one of the honors of my lifetime. And I was um, incredibly blessed to be chosen to be able to help speak on behalf of the Alstrom family. And, um, you know, I guess I should, I probably should have done this at the beginning, but um, a shout out to all the, uh, all the A-teamers out there. If any of you guys end up listening to the, uh, listening to this podcast, um, you guys mean the world to me and I can't wait to see y'all soon. <laughs> oh, that made me just smile. That was an awesome webinar. Uh, so thanks for letting me know about it. I did watch it. Um, and I love seeing the families talk and you did a great job. And I know they're probably so happy to have you on board and what you bring to the table is so unique and important. Please plug Alstrom syndrome. Let us know where we can find them, where we can support them and any resources that you want any families to know about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Alstrom.org um, is a really good place to get sort of up to date on Alstrom syndrome, whether it be for families, patients or providers. Alstrom.org slash PFDD is where if anyone wants to see information on the PFDD, it's not out there yet. We're still working on sort of the back end writing of trans like transcribing and making videos and whatnot. But um, when that's available, that will be available on the website. Uh, we do have some literature, some medical literature out there, um, as well as some newsletters and information about our multidisciplinary clinics that if anyone is interested in learning, um, certainly Alstrom.org is a good place to take a look. Uh, so I know some parents are wondering, are you available to join more boards, especially those with complex epilepsy and drugs that will kill your liver and ruin everything for your future? So just wondering how many how many boards you think you're eventually going to be able to sit on <laughs> or recommend some pharmacists to? That, that's a really good question. Um, I think I would want to take that on a case by case basis, but I certainly do know a lot of pharmacists out there that um, do a really great work in different specialties and some actually within the rare disease space. But that being said, I'm happy to speak with anyone and I'm definitely out up to, uh, to listen to what people have to say and hear stories and um, work with people. Awesome. I think this goes along with, I think, and I don't know because I haven't been approved palliative care yet, but I believe all rare disease pediatric patients deserve palliative care. And I wonder if the pharmacist is one of the voices on that care team. If so, great. If not, it should be. But for those of us who don't have palliative care yet or don't necessarily want to seek it out, how can we bring our own pharmacists into our care team and get 
them to communicate. I know that's always a problem, getting our care team to communicate. But what suggestions would you have to kind of bring everyone in? I would say just it really is just whether it's the patient themselves or the parent, you just have to advocate. If you believe there's someone that can make a difference in your health or your child's health or whomever um, you're giving care to, I think it's just really important to make sure you have the best people possible on your team. And, you know, sometimes it really is just a matter of sending an email or picking up the phone and just making sure that people talk to each other and communicate. A lot of times, too, if you're within a, if you're within a health system, if your pharmacist, say, works within a certain health system, then a lot of times the records are right there. So it is just a matter of getting the person that you want to help you to have to make sure they look at it and have access and sort of give their feedback. Um, so that way the whole team can work together and make sure the best care possible is happened. I think to expand on that too, just the importance of multidisciplinary care, not even just from the point of a pharmacist, but just healthcare in general. I really do think that the, um, especially with multi-systemic diseases, for example, Alzheimer's syndrome, having the endocrinologist, the cardiologist, the primary care physician, the nurse practitioner, or in some cases, nurse, you know, home health nurse, the local pharmacist, have them all, having them all aware of the information and working together. That way, every person can contribute their expertise while making sure that nothing is missed is, I think, tantamount to just about anything else that happens uh, throughout that process. And I think that some truly wonderful and amazing things can happen for kids when they get on, you know, when they get, whether it's an exercise piece of exercise equipment that they need that allows them to get their heart better because of lack of mobility or getting a medication regimen, right. Or getting even a diet, a dietitian involved or, you know, social work due to some um, mental health scares that they're having any, any of those things, I think just getting the multidisciplinary team to all work together and allowing people the leniency to work within their expertise and work with the family and try to get what the family wants and needs to be taken care of is really important and can make it a, a world of difference from like a life expectancy standpoint, but also a quality of life stamp standpoint. All, both of those areas benefit from a multidisciplinary team. Mm, I'll put all of that in text, that entire last paragraph. Yes, Chase. <laughs> Amen to all of that. <laughs> Well, I'm so excited to have the pharmacist's voice, and I look forward to a future where you're automatically a part of our team because it sounds like you have a lot to say and that you have a lot of expertise to provide as a resource to families like mine. So I hope this makes some people think, and I hope that you can explore the idea of getting someone like Chase in your patient advocacy group boards or even just available to talk with your patient advocacy community group so they can best advocate for themselves in the office. So I appreciate your time, Chase. Shout out to the A-team. I love that name. And thanks for being my guest today. Yeah, thank you so much. It was It's truly an honor to be on your podcast and uh, to get to know some more of the rare disease community. And I, I look forward to some of the good work I get to be a part of, but also just seeing the, the good work that our ever-growing community is able to accomplish for these kiddos that, um, you know, just they deserve nothing but the absolute best. So hopefully we're our team, you know, is able to, to help them with that. Yes. Yes. We're on the right track. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, 
please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.